Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey, and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. My name is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. and Thank you so much for listening to over 50 episodes that we have here with, uh, with this show. It's been such a thrill to be able to talk to so many great creative people and so many more to come. This has been just a real pleasure for me to get to know all these people. And I hope that you've been taking advantage of this as well and getting to know all these people through downloading these episodes. We have uh, episodes available on Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. And uh, wherever you are, please keep downloading. Please keep subscribing. And uh, if you have access to the Apple podcast, please send us a like and review because that's, uh, that's, that's nothing but beneficial for this whole show. And I really, really appreciate it. You've probably heard of the phrase that, uh, that Andy Warhol made famous. He said, in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. And um, I've always been just kind of like very leery of that because I feel that uh, when it comes to fame, you know, like there's, there's plenty of room for everyone. And I really admired people that, uh, that's, that um, people would deem to have, uh, have had their moment early, but then were able to basically reinvent themselves and keep on going in the field that they love the most. Um, there is, uh, there's nothing out there that says that you have to stay in one place for a set amount of time once you're there. And it's been a real pleasure getting to know my, uh, my guest for this week, Stanley Livingston. Uh, those of you who are fans of classic television, you know him as Chip, the youngest, uh, the youngest son in My Three Sons. Uh, in fact, uh, he and Fred McMurray were the only two actors, from what I understand, that, have, uh, that were there for the entire run of the show. So it's gonna be great to hear about that. And it's also gonna be even better to hear about everything that he's been doing afterwards. Uh, he's not only continued with acting, but he's also gone into producing. We're gonna hear more about his production company coming up. So there's a whole lot of ground to cover. I am really excited to welcome to the show, Stanley Livingston. Stanley, how are you, sir? Hey, George, how are you doing today? I am doing great, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, um, my pleasure. Yeah, so 
uh, as I mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, not only not only are you an actor, but you're also a producer, correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that came out of my acting career. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was on a TV show called My Three Sons, and it was a long lasting show. We did 12 years and around the time it was winding up, I was in my early 20s and uh, kind of thought, well, you know, maybe I should have some other skills besides acting. And uh, I had a ton of people around me that really knew the business from every aspect, meaning cameras, lenses, editing, production. Uh, so I, you know, immersed myself in that the last two, three years I was on the show and became proficient at it and formed a production company and started uh, filming things, had a partner and, you know, we film commercials, industrials, uh, music videos, whatever, you know, people would hire you for. And uh, along the way, we've done movies, uh, I've done a Cinerama production, um, you know, just about every, everything you can think of we've done. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And what's the name of the production company? Uh, the production company is called First Team Productions. And yeah, you can check it out online, firstteamproductions.com. It's got uh, some of the stuff that we've done is listed up there as uh, finished productions. And then some of the stuff that's in the queue that, or was in the queue, mm -hmm. <laughs> thanks to uh, COVID, everything we had at various different levels of development and pre-production have been shut down. That's that's something that I'm I'm really like been uh, been keeping an eye on. There are a lot of different uh, a lot of different production companies that have really kind of halted everything as a result of COVID. How have you been dealing with with this? Uh, pretty much, it's it's uh, well. I mean, this is by my decision. Um, you know, to not, I guess you know, forge ahead with a production. Uh, we were just getting ready to shoot a. Um, was a TV pilot, kind of a quasi talk show, cook show hybrid. Right. And I uh, had two other partners and uh, I guess I was the one most dubious about pushing ahead. I just didn't like the idea of bringing actors in and a crew together. So, you know, total maybe about 30 people and you're locked in a room, mm -hmm. either a soundstage or a practical location for uh, two days of 15 hour days. It sounded like a bad idea to me. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I said, I think we should wait and see what happens. This was back in March and April. We waited a couple months. Um, our mm -hmm. production date was around May 15th. And I wanted to wait a couple more months when I saw well, it was just exploding at that point. Right. And didn't feel, didn't feel right to me. Checked into it, couldn't get COVID insurance. Uh, and although mm -hmm. the, you know, the company, when we do a production, we form another entity, an LLC, to shoot each production under. Uh, right. The LLC didn't seem like it would provide enough uh, of a bridge, or should mm -hmm. I say kind of a firewall between us and the investors and the people we were going to be working with if there was some sort of thing that resulted from the production, meaning somebody got sick. God forbid somebody got sick and then died, uh, you're going to be personally liable. Yeah. You know? uh, and I'm sort of the business person of the production company. And this was a co-production with two other people uh, mm -hmm. and their companies. And uh, anyway, so we sat there for about a month and a half, two months, and it just seemed to be escalating. And wow. uh, they wanted to move ahead and I didn't. And I said, you know, feel free. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> really? So, yeah. so they, so, it's possible it's likely that they're going to keep on 
Nope, Go. they went ahead. They shot it. Uh, oh, they so did. It was wow. done. I, you know, I don't know where it's at or what happened with it, but uh, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, uh, I just did not feel like being that reckless. And uh, my yeah. partners did. They moved on, and you know, hopefully, I wish them well. But I hope nothing, you know, comes of it because uh, right. their asses are on the line, as they say. Yeah, and I yeah. just thought it was the prudent thing to do. I've been doing this a long time and know the ins and outs of you know what can happen when things go awry. And you know, you're yeah. looking at it and going, "Wow, this is all out there." So right. how ignorant or stupid am I to push ahead? And uh, you know, when I know what's going on, that's not going to be a very good defense if you know push comes to shove. And I'm always one that likes to err on the side of caution, so I had to make a choice. And unfortunately, my choice was to bow out. So, nothing wrong with nothing wrong with erring, erring yeah. on the side of caution, especially yeah. when you're playing with people's lives. Like this mm, is well, yeah. And, and, and in this case, it's people that I knew. You know, yeah. Uh, some of the crew were friends. Uh, definitely, the actors were friends, and I, I just did not want to be that guy, so uh, I had to totally bow out. Uh, let yeah. my partners go ahead and take their chances of what they wanted to do, and I just figure, you know, projects are like streetcars. If you miss one, another will be along in a minute. There you so. go. There yeah, when this thing ends, I've got a few other things that are sitting here on the back burner, waiting to go as soon as uh, you know the cloud lifts. Now, before we before we go back and um, discuss more about how you started in this whole business, I'm curious, uh, um, just to get you know, just to just to get you know, just to throw this out there, since we we're talking about COVID, that when things settle down to a point where we can actually kind of get back to some sort of normalcy it's not going to be 100% normal. Um, no, it's it's no. not. Um, during this whole time, during this whole quarantine period and everything, are there th certain things that you've learned during this point that you feel like uh, once, once the world kind of opens back up again, you can take with you into this new era? Um, well, there's gonna be things that whether you want to take them with you or not are gonna be forced on you till I think we have some sort of vaccination against this and right. people feel fairly safe that if they come to work that they're being protected adequately uh but the vaccination would you know hopefully preclude you getting it even if somebody turns out to be sick sick on the set that yeah. they're not going to spread it to you um so i'll be waiting probably longer than most uh you know due to my age if i was 20 yeah. 30 40 i, I would have probably you know went ahead with my partners and shot it but Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I'm up there of the age where COVID loves me if it can find me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to hide for it. I'm hiding out till this is gone. But yeah, what's happening on, you know, big studio productions is causing complete chaos. You, you have mm -hmm. to have a medic, I'm calling him a medical officer, but a nurse, a doctor on the set at all mm -hmm. times, you know, observing behavior and, uh, you know, checking people 10 times a day to make sure they don't have a fever or, yeah. you know, if you're watching some guy over in the corner coughing who was sick but lied because he needed the job and needed the money, mm -hmm. um, you know, all those things kind of come to light. And uh, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, whether you're, I don't want to call them a lowly extra, but, you know, you're kind of at the bottom of the food chain on the set or you're a big, big movie star. 
I mean, look who just yeah. came out and announced he has COVID. Uh, Dwayne yep. Johnson. Robert yeah, Dwayne know? Johnson, Robert Pattinson as well with, yeah, uh, Robert with the Batman. And, you know, I don't know where Dwayne is at the moment in a production. I'm, you know, he works constantly. But yeah. uh, Robert Pattinson, uh, the production had started. The train had left the station. And he, yep. I think they got four days into it and how to shut it down. Do you know what that's going to cause? Do you have any <laughs> idea? Whatever uh, they shot I, is probably... I'm, a, I'm afraid to even think. You know, I'm afraid to even fathom the idea, especially mm -hmm. considering it's a Warner Brothers tentpole yeah. picture. Yeah, uh, yeah. You're, you're probably talking about two, three million dollars a day that just went into the dumpster, whether it's going to be able to start up at any point uh, soon. All those people already on salary that mm -hmm. if you let them go, God knows if they'll be there. I mean, it is so disruptive to have that happen. And that's yeah. why you don't want to start. You know, mm -hmm. you shoot something, you're just shooting something, you know, for two days. But at the end of the first day, the, the, the person you're using gets sick. You're screwed. Yeah. You know, uh, you got to go back to your investor and say, I'm sorry, I just lost all your money. Uh, yeah. Because we don't have the money to shoot a third day. Uh, right. But yeah. And the insurance company, I don't think they'll get reimbursed. I mean, I called a number of companies. They just said, no, we, we're not covering uh, any kind of COVID activities. So if you're shut down due to COVID, it's all on you. Wow. Yeah. So, wow. you know, in, in my scale, it probably doesn't mean too much. But when you're a big Hollywood studio, um, you know, I'm sure they have deep pockets, but, you know, yeah, not like losing money either. And it's like, where <laughs> are we with this? You know, we got a yeah, director and... who's hired for five million dollars is going to be sitting here twiddling his thumbs. And we already paid him because most of those people have what are called pay or play deals. Yep. And, you know, if you don't start production, you still got to pay them. And if you start production, shut down three, four days later, you still got to pay them. Yep. Yeah. And this is, it's, it's so weird what's happening to this business. I, like, um, they were saying that um, they were, say, they were uh, releasing the numbers for this, uh, this past weekend of the box office. And Bill and Ted uh, Face the Music came in at number three with $1.1 million dollars. And it's just like, and that was that deemed would, as a in, as a victory. In a real world, <laughs> in a real world, that would be called the bomb of all time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I'm sure yeah, it'll I mean, quickly go to streaming media, but yeah. Well, it's that, already well, there. Yeah, like that's it. It it did the it did the um, streaming and uh, theatrical release at the same time. So, well, um, it may have been sure a they test have a, like, the it, yeah. yeah, it may have been a test just to see what would happen if you throw a big movie into a you know a larger movie chain and see what happens if they can attract any fish with it to come into the theater and you know right. get some butts in seats and eat a bunch of popcorn but it it, it is so ill-advised at this point i mean they're hoping against hope people are not i think most people are smart enough to know you do not want to go into a theater and as much as yeah. i love theaters i hate saying that but I know, me it, too. Me too. Yeah. It breaks my heart to see, to to see that. You know, I mean, just having having gone into a movie theater back in like I think the last one I went to was I think like either late January or so or you know February and yeah, just it's it's it well, breaks my heart to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole world is changing. Look at corporate America. You know, how do you mm -hmm. bring thousands or tens of thousands of people into a, a building that they have to take a, the you know one of ten elevators to the the 90th floor whatever yeah. it's like you know with all those fingers crushing elevator buttons i don't think mm -hmm. so but yeah. but the changes that are going to come because of that with you know corporations figuring out, well maybe we don't really need to have these people in the business they sit at their computer all day why can't they do this at home yes so and i i am will. 
I'm definitely, uh, I'm, I definitely consider myself blessed that the, uh, that my day job allowed me to do that, to work from home from March yeah. through May. And you know, like now that I'm, I'm still able to, um, I'm still going into work now at the, at my new location, but at the same time, it's a limited amount of people. There's very little contact with anyone. Uh, yeah. so it, it and allows sure me go, to kind of like spread out a little bit, you know, and I'm sure you go into that area to, uh, you know, wrapped up like a mummy. Oh The changes that are going to come, it's not just people working at home with these buildings vacated. What's going to happen to commercial real estate when everybody realizes, gee, we never really needed these buildings to begin with. Everybody yeah. can work at home almost. I mean, the only mm -hmm. people that can't are, you know, in the movie industry, you got to yeah. be there. You know, I can't yep. turn in my performance, uh, you know, from my home on my iPhone. So how are you going to do that business? Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Like, you know, thinking about, you know, like what is what the next several years are going to be like. And it turns out like it's completely different from any sort of post-apocalyptic, post-pandemic type of story that, you know, that uh, that so many so many other writers and everything have come up with. It's it's pretty yeah. fascinating to just kind of see this and. I hope that uh, that all of the all my fellow sci-fi authors and everything are paying attention to what's going on because like material is coming out you know for us on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, so uh, so let's go. So for you, let's go back to the beginning of all of this. Let's go to pre-COVID. Um, yeah, pre-COVID, pre almost you know, pre-Spanish flu, pre-cable. You know, just like you know, we're going. We're going back to what I call the lightning bolt moment, which is that moment in time where every, everyone's got it, where, some, where something happens, where you experience something or someone that makes you point in the, the direction and just say, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. What was that moment for you? Because this was, for you, it was, um, you know, well, obviously was, it was a lot younger, than, yeah. lot, lot younger than, uh, than my other guests. What happened? How did it go for you? Well, I was watching one TV one day when I was about four years old and I was sitting there with my cowboy hat on and my cap guns mm -hmm. and going, how do you get inside that box? Nice. <laughs> how do I get to ride with Gene Autry or Roy Rogers? Yeah. I wanted oh, to be great. a cowboy and it looked like somehow to me a TV was a portal to my dreams. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that point, I had not a clue. The only thing yeah. that I had going was uh, the interest in it and interest mm -hmm. in the arts at a young age. Uh, when I was in kindergarten um, mm -hmm. and first grade, uh, I, you know, there were stage shows and I, you know, yeah. it was a chance to get up and sing and dance and be the MC and dress mm -hmm. up like a milkman or a cowboy or a police <laughs> officer. And, you know, it was like something you could do and it wasn't even Halloween. So, mm -hmm. you know, I was really enthusiastic about that. Uh, when I got to grammar school, uh, I went to, I lived in Hollywood. I was born and raised in Hollywood, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, this the, the elementary school I went to, Vine Street Elementary School. They, you know, besides the regular curriculum, they put on productions. And nice. I volunteered for everything. I just, you know, that was my favorite thing to do. And uh, anyway, that coupled with this other thing, my parents wanted me to swim at a very young age. Uh, oh. I think there's been a death in the family prior to me even being around, uh, maybe a couple of years before I was born of a cousin. 
Oh, wow. And uh, my mom wanted me to learn how to swim at a young age. So she took me to a swim school in Hollywood that was on Hollywood Boulevard. A lady named Jen Lovin operated it and was the instructor. And they had all these little children and babies in the water, uh, you know, learning how to swim. So I learned how to swim. Uh, the lady was very entrepreneurial and put together these little shows where they put like toy bicycles, toy cars and fire engines underwater. And she had a porthole cut in the side of her pool. So you could go down some steps and you can see all these kids underwater riding bikes and swinging and, you know, doing all kinds of crazy antics. Oh, wow. And it attracted the attention of some very popular uh, magazines of that era, Vogue, McCall's, who came out and did spreads on it. And uh, her pool became quite famous. Um, and then because of the show she put together, there was a show on TV back then called You Asked For It. Uh -huh. And people would write in and go, I'm, you know, I want to see whatever they want to see, like, you know, chimpanzees in the, you know, Zimbabwe Zoo or something. Well, somebody wrote in <laughs> and said they wanted to see the water babies. It was probably the owner of the pool who wrote in. <laughs> smart. That'd be smart if they yes. were. Yeah. And it, it worked. Uh, the film crew came out and, you know, we did our thing. We rode cars underwater and bicycles and uh, did some high diving off this 15-foot platform. And, you know, we were all of about four years old. And uh, because of that, the pool gained more notoriety. And what happened was a lot of Hollywood type people, meaning producers, directors, casting directors, started bringing their children to this pool to learn how to swim. Oh. And uh, there was an agent there. And I don't know how my mom started talking to her, but her daughter was learning how to swim and they made friends. And uh, she thought I had the qualifications or at least the uh, raw material to be a child actor. I mean, I was extroverted, I was cute, and mm -hmm. I wasn't camera shy or anything like that. So uh, she wanted to send me out on some interviews and you know, just take a chance and you see what happens. So my mom agreed and um, I went out on some interviews and didn't really get any acting parts, but I got some uh, extra work. You nice. know, like the third kid from the left or the kid that gets hit over the head, you know, with a baseball bat or whatever. Right. And uh, pretty early on, um, there was some other people at the pool who I guess were affiliated with the, the TV show Lassie. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how well you remember Lassie, but Lassie started actually more in the mid 50s or earlier 50s. And it had right. a, a boy on there named Tommy Reddick. Uh, he mm -hmm. was the original, you know, child actor on it. And uh, about 1956, 57, they decided he had kind of grown up on the show. And I think he was 17, 18. And they wanted to replace him with a younger child actor uh, yeah. just to give some new life into the show. And they hired John Provost, who played Timmy. Mm -hmm. And brought June Lockhart in. And yep. I think they switched the grandfather out. Anyway, in that first, what they call the transition episode, uh, Timmy whatever, I guess he doesn't want to live on a farm or I don't know what the deal was, but he, he runs away and uh, Lassie goes looking for him and Timmy falls off a bridge into the water, a lake or something. And Lassie goes and gets somebody to run out and you know rescue him while he's out in the middle of the lake drowning. So anyway, John couldn't swim. So guess oh, who no. got hired uh, to be ah. his stunt double? Uh, they dressed me in the same clothes, the jeans and that uh, Italian tablecloth type shirt he always wore, the, the <laughs> red checks. 
and mm -hmm. that's me out in the water flailing away. In fact, I never saw it. And just recently, somebody uh, recorded it for me. And, oh, very uh, cool. I, I finally got to see what I look like flailing around the water, trying to keep my face turned away from the camera. <laughs> uh, I mean, I look like John to a you know, pretty good degree. We both have blonde hair. We're the same height. I think yeah. John's maybe a year or so older than me. And, uh, but that was me in the water. Uh, so I did a stunt job. And about 19, I think it was at the end of 57, mm -hmm. uh, I got sent out again to be an extra on a show called The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. Oh, okay. And uh, which was one of the most popular shows on TV at that point in time. And, you know, they had David and Ricky Nelson, and mm -hmm. a lot going for the show. But anyway, there was an episode where Ozzie was selling some Christmas trees uh, in his backyard to make extra money at Christmas time. Mm -hmm. And he probably had a, a forest of about 50 trees out there that you could choose from. And he had a prospective client there. And the joke was he's showing this guy the trees and talk about the trees. And all of a sudden, you know, five or six little kids come marching out of the trees with backpacks and sleeping bags. <laughs> and we walk past him. And he's like looking like, you know, it was like the Boy Scouts were just camping in the sea of trees. <laughs> they were going, hi, Mr. Nelson. Hi, Mr. Nelson. <laughs> and um, anyway, I didn't have a line, but we shot it a couple of times. And then he came over to me and said, could you say this line? And, and he told me what to say. Mm -hmm. And then they shot it again, and we came out, and uh, I said the line, and then we did it again, and he moved the camera closer to get a close-up of me saying the line, and my line was, sure is mighty good camping in there, Mr. Nelson, and <laughs> that's how it all started for me after that. Wow. Uh, I was an actor, because once you mm -hmm. say a line on on the uh, camera, you go from being an extra to an actor. Uh, mm -hmm. I would be allowed to be Taft Hartley, which means I now had... Uh, the qualifications to join the Screen Actors Guild and, you know, become an actual Screen Actors Guild actor and get my card. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of what happened. But before the day was over, Ozzy went up to my mom and asked a bunch of questions, uh, you know, who I was and what my training was, which was, you know, a, a few jobs as an extra and drowning on, on camera. And he <laughs> said, I'd like to have him back again. And my ah. mom was, you know, yeah, sure, you know. And he yeah. said, please, please leave your information in the office. He told her who to go up to, and they did. And true to his word, every time they needed a, you know, like a neighborhood kid, he started calling me. So between... Uh, whenever this was, in the 56, 57, mm -hmm. I probably did four or five shows for, uh, Ozzy, for the adventures of Ozzy and Harriet right up to the time I got my three sons. Um, and then because of that, uh, my agent got all jazzed because I was working and mm -hmm. uh, I started getting movies. I was in a film called, uh, what was it called? The Dorothy Parker. Was it Dorothy Parker story? Yeah, I think it was the Dorothy Parker story. Oh no, the mm -hmm. Bonnie Parker story. And it was uh, Dorothy Provine played Bonnie in Bonnie and Clyde movie. And, oh, wow. Uh, I was some little kid who stole the keys out of their car right when they're ready to make a getaway. <laughs> and, you know, Clyde wants to kick my ass. And Dorothy, uh, <laughs> Bonnie comes up to me and I have the keys and she uses psychology on me. She trades uh, the keys Mm -hmm. uh, for a, a couple sticks of chewing gum. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> Apparently I could be bought off easily. But uh, yeah, the movie, oh, I just, it was called The Bonnie Parker Story. That was the right. name of the, the film. 
And uh, from that, I, you know, got um, another film with Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward called Rally Around the Flag Boys. And then I got oh, wow. another film called uh, Please Don't Eat the Daisies with Doris Day and David Niven. And in between that, I was doing television shows uh, of that era. You know, so by the time I was about eight or nine, I had a pretty, pretty good little resume. Yeah, um, that sounds fantastic. Other thing that happened due to me being a, a proactive actor mm-hmm. <laughs> when I was doing a Nazi and Harriet in between scenes, you know, you'd have some downtime. And uh, I had a couple hours before I had to work again. And I, I wandered around the studio, uh, which mm-hmm. in those days was called General Service. It eventually became American Zotrope when Francis oh. Ford Coppola bought it. And wow. I'm not sure what it's called now, but it's right in the heart of Hollywood. Uh-huh. Actually, a couple blocks from where we live, and um, I went over to this one stage, and I noticed they had a horse. And I remember I followed the horse and the and the trainer out the back door, and mm-hmm. I was you know really interested. And the guy started talking to me, the trainer, and he said, "Hey, would you like to brush him?" And I said, "Sure," you know. And he gave me two brushes and showed me how to do it. And he goes, "He he likes carrots. You want to you want to give him some of these carrots as treats?" So I gave him you know, carrots. Well, I had no idea who the horse was. He was just, you know, a horse to me. Well, it turns out it was Mr. Ed. Whoa, <laughs> shot okay. Mr. Ed right next door to wow. Harriet. So, yeah, <laughs> so that was one of the uh, things that happened. And then I noticed a dog was working on a stage across from us. We were on stage five where right. they did Ozzy and Harriet. And I don't remember the stage number, but I went over there and, and there was a trainer there with a dog and uh, it was a basset hound. And so I was going over there just playing with him and talking to the trainer and he asked me if I was interested in dogs or do you want to become a dog handler and showed me how to do hand signals. So while I'm talking to him, I don't know, maybe I used to go over there every chance I got. And uh, this guy comes up to me and he said, uh, who are you? You know, and I said, oh, my name's Stanley Livingston. <laughs> and he started laughing because mm-hmm. of the name. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, are, are, you a, are you a friend of the trainer? I said, no, no, I'm working next door on Ozzy and Harriet. I'm just a kid actor. And mm-hmm. so he asked me a bunch of questions. And then uh, I'm kind of nervously answering him because I'm thinking I'm going to get arrested or something. Right. And so finally he said, uh, is your mom with you? And I said, oh, yeah, she's over on the set. And then I said to him, am, am I in trouble? And he goes, oh, no, no, you're not in trouble. He goes, but I'd like to meet your mom. And I, I was like, uh, OK. okay. <laughs> I said, oh, man, I'm getting a spanking. So uh, right. anyway, I led him back to stage five and introduced him to my mom. And my mom almost fell over. Well, I didn't know who this guy was. You know, he was just, you know, and he was probably only about 30, 30-ish, you know, but when mm-hmm. you're when you're eight or seven, you know, it seemed like yeah. an old man to me. And uh, well, it turns out it was Jackie Cooper. <laughs> wow. I know. And what? he was doing a TV series on that stage where I took Dog. He was also the director and the producer of that yeah. show. Um, and it was a show called People's Choice and it had a dog on it, which was Cleo. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, introduced him to my mom and, you know, I just kind of wandered away, but kept my eye on him. And I saw him talking to her for about a half hour and then he left. He didn't come back up to me. And then about two months later, next thing I found out was I was going to be doing the lead uh, character in a pilot called Skippy, which Whoa. Jackie Cooper was going to be producing and directing. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, this was at the end of 19. 19- 
58, we shot it. Uh, it was right after my eighth birthday. I just turned eight in November, so around December 8th. I guess that would mm-hmm. be, what, about two weeks later, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I was on the set of Skippy, and uh, it was my first starring role. Uh, my name was above the title, and I was this little kid on a show, and I didn't know anything about Skippy at that time. But, you know, come to find out, Jackie Cooper, when he was a child actor, he was mm-hmm. next to Shirley Temple, probably the biggest child actor ever in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, had done a, I think it was 1935, did a movie called Skippy. And I guess oh, when he yeah. met me, he realized, wow, this kid's kind of like me. Maybe I could turn Skippy into a TV series and decided to shoot a pilot of it and got the backing. And uh, we shot it. And uh, anyway, it, it was kind of a showpiece for me. It's actually, I think, how I got my three sons. Uh, you have to remember back then, actors had resumes, but no reels. <laughs> we didn't yeah. have videotape. Uh, we didn't have DVDs. We didn't have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, online media that you could download on, uh, you know, a media file. So right. the only way to show your work in those days was to borrow the reel and take it mm. to a theater that uh, usually was a smaller theater, but you could for what they call four wallet, meaning you could rent it and show your own film there. And you right. could normally only do that after midnight. But that's what my parents did. I. Um, Apparently, um, yeah, by this time, I was getting calls to do things and getting hired without even interviews. But anyway, uh, some people were about to do a new series and were putting it together. And it came through my agent. My agent borrowed the the film uh, mm-hmm. from Jackie to show the people, the producers. And uh, the very next day, I was hired. Literally, I went in, met the people. And, you know, by the end of the day, I was hired to do My Three Sons. Uh, so I was... Besides Fred McMurray, the first person cast wow. uh, the show. And at that time, we didn't know Fred McMurray was going to be on the show. That was top secret, and they wouldn't even yeah. tell us. They just said it's a, a big, big movie star. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, uh, push came to shove. I never saw Skippy, because every time they sh- showed it, <laughs> it was like midnight, one in the morning. I'm just a little, you know, what, eight-year-old kid. So right. uh, I never got to see it. And, Gotta sleep uh, sometime. Yeah, yeah. I had to sleep sometime. the The funny part was, I never. I guess it was what almost like sixty years ago. You know. Uh, anyway, about mm-hmm. a year or so ago, some guy contacted me through uh, Facebook, and I knew who it was. So I told him how to reach me, uh, my email and phone number, and all that. And anyway, he uh, called me, and we talked. And it turned out he was the kid who played my best friend on Skippy, and. Oh, I wow. stayed in contact with him maybe for about five years after that. Back he he did a couple of my three sons episodes. Eventually, be, you know, got out of the business and became a tennis pro. But I remember his mom and my mom were friends for a while. We lived not too far from where they lived in Hollywood, and I think she was the one who had acting aspirations. And uh, you know, she's a really pretty lady. Mm-hmm. And but her son, you know, somehow got involved. So uh, I asked Jay, I said, hey, have you ever, did you ever get to see Skippy? He says, oh yeah, yeah. And I said a bunch of times. I said, gosh, I never saw it. Um, I said, wow. He said, well, I, I have a copy of it. And I'm like, you do? And, and so I told him, I said, yeah, I never saw it. <laughs> um, I said, the funny part was probably about 1980, somewhere in the early 80s, I went over, I ran into Jackie Cooper, went over to his house. 
we mm -hmm. rummaged through his garage <laughs> with a bunch of old nice. film stuff and reels and we couldn't find it and then maybe about five six years later i ran him to something else and he said come back over and this time i think we went through his attic or something and um couldn't find it so i just thought well it's not meant to be you know mm -hmm. i always wanted to see what kind of job i did but you know was really good because i was getting a lot of work off that reel so i figured right. it been okay so anyway jay uh was a couple i think i talked to him in june and it turned out he was coming down to palm springs uh in december he owned a condo there so we got together and came over my house and brought the dvd that he had and uh you know we we watched it together it was yeah totally amazing it had a pristine wow. copy but yeah, I finally got to see the work That's that terrific. I did. And when I saw it, I go, well, yeah, well, no wonder I was getting hired all the time. You know, it's just so cute. And <laughs> the other thing was handling that amount of workload. It you know, wasn't like where you're part of a show. I mean, it's, it's an ensemble in that there's other actors there. But I would say I'm on screen 95% of the time with the dialogue too. I don't know how yeah. I did it when I was eight years old, but I you know, carried it and I could see why, you know, the people on My Three Sons wanted me. But yeah, it was interesting. Absolutely. And before he left, he went so to the trunk of his car and handed me this box, uh, which I knew immediately what it was. It was like a 1950s style <laughs> film case. And he goes, here, here's the film mm -hmm. reel of Skippy. So I put two and two together and wow. figured out his mom had borrowed it from Jackie Cooper. I guess Jay was trying to get work in those days and uh, um, never returned it. And yeah. Somewhere along the line, they made a copy of it, a digital copy, and the, the copy was great. But anyway, the film inside was badly deteriorated. So it's it's more of a memento than anything else. It, you really couldn't run it through a, a film chain and copy it again. But the copy I had is so clean, you know, right. I, it's unbelievable. But, it was uh, interesting. So that kind of segued me to my three sons. And, uh, you know, uh, wow. I got the part. They hired uh, William Frawley, fresh off of I Love Lucy, to play the grandfather, Bub, mm -hmm. uh, Bub O'Casey. Uh, yep. Then they hired Tim Considine as the older brother. Uh, and Tim was known to audiences from, if you watch the Mickey Mouse Club and saw Spin and Marty and the Hardy Boys, that was Tim. Um, and then they oh. hired a, an actor named Bobby Diamond, who was on a show called Fury, mm -hmm. to, to play Robbie. And okay. we started shooting, and I don't know what happened, but a couple of days later we stopped, and I, I guess they fired him for some reason. I think it had something to do with his mother just driving everybody crazy. And so <laughs> they looked around for another Robbie, got another guy, we started shooting again. And about mm -hmm. two days later, we stopped again, and that guy was gone. And I remember oh, my man. mom calling <laughs> this agent who I had been briefly with, um, mm -hmm. and her name was Mary Grady. And she knew that Mary had a son named Don Grady, who was just mm -hmm. starting to act, and said, hey, if you can get him down here, they're looking for another Robbie. And Anyway, uh, Don came down, interviewed, and sure enough, a couple of days later, we started shooting with Don Grady, and that ended up being the final lineup with uh, Tim Considine, Don Grady, and myself as the uh, three kids. Uh, Fred McMurray is the dad, and William Frawley is the grandfather. Um, and then, oh, mm -hmm. by the way, the actor who they fired, the second guy, they fired him because they didn't think he could do comedy, was Ryan yeah. O'Neill. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So that was <laughs> kind of weird. That would have changed his life. 
Uh, he wouldn't have got yeah. paid twice, so and he wouldn't have turned yeah. into a movie star. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, kind man. of like the stars. But uh, yeah. anyway, so yeah, we started doing My Three Sons, which became a huge, huge hit, primarily because of Fred mm -hmm. McMurray. Uh, you know, Fred at that time. For audiences today who don't know who Fred McMurray is, uh, in 1960, uh, he was probably the top paid actor in Hollywood. He was mm -hmm. a huge, 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 huge movie star that for whatever <laughs> reason decided he was going to do a TV series. Uh, and the reason being is he and his wife, a couple of years before that, had adopted some twins and he didn't want to go off and make movies uh, where you're gone for two, three mm -hmm. months, six months, not see your kids. Uh, and he wanted a regular job where he could go shoot, go to work at eight o'clock and be home by six, 6 p.m. And that's kind of what my three mm -hmm. sons afforded him. And uh, he ended up being paid very well and owned half the show with Don Federson, the producer of the show. And uh, right. yeah, the show, because of Fred McMurray's status in the industry, you know, it attracted a huge audience of moviegoers and, uh, you know, people from CBS, the brass there were always coming down to see how he was doing and have lunch with him and <laughs> pay their respects <laughs> and uh you know so that's how my three sons uh, came about when you know every year we would finish a season which in those days was 39 episodes per year for the first wow. year so there were a lot of black and white episodes it's a lot <laughs> right and then the end of the fourth year tim considine the older brother decided to leave the show and see what else life had to offer for him and he did one episode in the fifth year where he got married and then he disappeared into the twilight zone and the show mm -hmm. knowing that tim was leaving the show that they needed uh they needed to do something about that because suddenly we had a show called my three sons with only two sons so <laughs> they were looking around for another son when kind of like what happened with harrison ford right right under their eyes and their feet was a guy. My brother had started working on the show as a, a friend of mine, you know, somebody lived in the neighborhood and, you know, he was cute and had the glasses and was kind of different looking than most of the child actors from those days and was a great actor. Right. And uh, had done numerous episodes uh, as guest appearances and lo and behold, there was the solution. They decided he would be a foster child and oh, the Douglas okay. family would adopt him and make him the third son. So over a, a series of about five or six episodes, this little story of him being a foster child and you know us deciding to adopt him and going through the machinations with the court. And there was a, a mm -hmm. welfare worker who was his caseworker, who was Vera Miles, who was pretty cute. And Fred and her kind of have a little romance thing kind of going on too. Really? <laughs> um, yeah, Ernie gets adopted into the family. So, uh, you know, uh, if you went into a coma at the beginning of that year and came out, you had no idea what the hell happened. Tim Constantine was out, <laughs> Barry Livingston was in, and since there's no nepotism in show business, Barry got the part. <laughs> gotcha. And, wow, that's great. Yeah. So, so it's, yeah, it sounds it's like, it sounds like, from there. It sounds like, I mean, um, the way you were talking about like the, all the different shows that were going on. It sounds like everything is, was so compact. Like everything was all just like isolated to one location. And you can just like go from like soundstage to soundstage. That sounds really incredible. Like yeah, you can't even help but, like you can't help but gain sort of experience and knowledge and everything about the whole industry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's basically, you know, you're thrown into a Petri cup and, you know, with all the parts of it there. And, you know, if you're, 
Mm -hmm. Unless you're oblivious to everything, you almost couldn't help learning the business by osmosis just by looking at what was happening. And I, I credit myself if there's anything I've ever had, it's self-awareness, even as a kid. So, mm -hmm. you know, even though I was an actor and, you know, that's all that was expected of me, I, you know, was always aware of the camera, where the microphone was, where the lighting, what kind of lighting it was, where it was pointed. You know, why mm -hmm. did it have a scrim in front of it or a kookaloris or whatever? Yep. <laughs> and I was an inquisitive kid and asked a lot of questions too. And, you know, you had all these old timers working on the show who, you know, in their hair, heyday were, you know, directors of photography on big, big movies. Some of them won Academy mm -hmm. Awards for being uh, cinematographers. So it was a great place mm -hmm. to learn. And they were only too generous to answer all my questions and, you know, offer up things. So, Slowly but surely, I didn't realize that I was learning every aspect of the business, you know, from the editing to the camera work to microphones to lenses to parallax to, you know, all the thing, film stocks, all the things you would need to know later, uh, which was a lot of a lot of fun, you know, uh, and that's and all that's I wanted to do. And it's great that that all those people that were that were on set were so willing to answer your question. There are people that, you know, you felt like you had to kind of like coax out some answers to them or were they just willing no, to they were just really to share what they knew people. yeah if i was interested in the camera you know they were lighting or something you know the guy that asked i'd take me over to the camera and open the camera up show me how to you know thread the film through it um oh wow you know or insert these cams in there that would give according to the length of the lens it would tilt you know you couldn't look right through the camera so there's a viewfinder on the side but if yeah. it was a, a longer lens, you, the, you'd have to put a cam in, which would take the viewfinder and tilt it in towards the lens uh, mm -hmm. and point it more like what you would actually see. Or if it was a wider lens, and you'd use a smaller cam, and it would be almost parallel to the lens. And in, in those days, we shot with uh, was called a Mitchell BNC, which was the workhorse of the industry in those days. It was virtually a silent camera. It was so well blimped and the, the materials it was made, made of, you couldn't hear the motor and you couldn't hear the clackety clack of the film being pulled through, uh, you know, with the claw. Um, right. Yeah, so, you know, they, that's what I was saying. These guys were great or, you know, just makeup. You go, why are you using that makeup on me and that one on, on him? And then, you know, mm -hmm. there was all these different numbers on the different colors of makeup. So, you know, you found out if you were interested about all that, all that kind of stuff or the scheduling, you know, I'd go up there and, you know, the whole schedule would be laid out on a board with film strips of each different scene who was in it, where it was an interior, wow. exterior, day or night, how many eighths of a page the scene was and how many eighths of a page we could mm -hmm. shoot a day uh, or how many pages actually. And, uh, you know, over time, I, you know, learned just about everything you could learn. So by the time I was 17, 18, all that information was in my head. And I was like, I want to go use some of this and try this out on my own. Yeah. So I formed it's like, yeah. It's like, it's like you were, it's like you were on film school before there was a film school, you know, like that. Literally. And then the film school I went to at first, uh, well, I ended up at UCLA, but I used to go to LACC, Los Angeles City College. Mm -hmm. They had a cinema department there. Uh, in a TV department, and uh, I, the reason I went there was we were filming during the day, 
and mm -hmm. uh, I could only go to night school. So as soon as we'd stop uh, filming uh, at six o'clock for me, six o'clock, uh, I had to seven o'clock to get to classes and four nights a week from seven to 10, I was in, you know, a lot of film classes, but you know, my regular classes too, I you know, wanted to go to college and get a degree and I thought I'll just do my lower division here while I'm learning all this other stuff. So my English classes and astronomy and history and sociology, all the, you know, crap you have to take at the beginning of school, I went there. But the funny part was in the cinema class, the guy at CBS Cinema Center where we shot My Three Sons the last five years, a gentleman named Peter Gibbons was one of my instructors at City College. And he ran the whole camera oh. department. So, you know, he probably went back to King Kong. That's <laughs> how far back he went. <laughs> wow. Wow. It was that that's 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 amazing. Like kind of getting that sort of experience. Getting paid for it as well. Like I mean that's, yeah, yeah. that's paid just, to learn that's that um, being able to go through that. It was a lucky day. So you as know, the as the show itself the is kind of do you? Um, yeah, yeah. So um, as so as the show was kind of like winding down, um, did you feel like um, did you feel like you needed to um, get to like a different project? You know, like as soon as you could, or was there yeah, a feeling of you know exactly. taking a break from from all of this? Not really. I mean. Part of me was torn because I'd been an actor for, you know, 20 years, 23 years, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that you want to keep going. But it was sort of a difficult thing to do. I realized, you know, the real reality of that for, for actors, especially actors that were known or coming off a, uh, a big hit series. Uh, I just thought my days would be numbered um, mm -hmm. because the casting people, you know, you're... Yeah you know, very well known as one particular character. And uh, that can be a good thing and, and not so much a good thing and that you're typecast. And the work I was getting right. after My Three Sons Over might as well have been, you know, part of My Three Sons as I was playing a high school student. And, you know, I wanted to branch out and try other things, but it was the limitations of being well known. So either you had casting people who cast you because you were somebody who personified, you know, clean cut, all American looking guy. Or, uh, you know, I wanted to get into the movie industry at that point and uh, kind of graduate from TV yeah. and the movies, but it was very difficult. The, uh, unfortunately, the casting people of that era were very, I think, narrow-minded. They wanted to cast their projects more with unknown people who were just really competent actors that they had discovered and they didn't want to drag some tv actor into mm -hmm. it who you know you come on screen everybody going oh it's chip it's chip which i get it it ruins the movie <laughs> uh you know somebody who suffered that yeah. really really uh you know george reeves is who was superman uh, but before superman oh, he yeah. was a good working you know actor uh, you know well respected got a lot of parts he was in uh, mm -hmm. gone with the wind uh, but after Superman, when somebody yep. cast him in a movie, it's you know, a fairly well-known story. Uh, they had a screening in Hollywood, and when he walked on screen, the audience went nuts. You know, I think it was a period piece, too, and uh, set in mm -hmm. whatever the 1800s. And he goes, Superman, Superman. And the producer leaned uh, over to the other producer and go, we got to cut him out of the movie. We can't have that in the middle of our oh, man. And it destroyed his career. Well, I was kind of on the outer fringes of that where that was still going on. Um, yeah. However, that being said, there were still 
producers, not of the best movies, but more like B movies who mm-hmm. said, hey, you know, if I hire this actor as opposed to an unknown actor, yeah, there might be a little bit of that, but hey, this guy's got 60 million people a week watching him. Maybe some of those people will come to see this guy in the movie. And so I did, a, I did a film for Roger Corman's brother, Gene Corman, which was kind of like a Roger Corman film. And uh, it was mm-hmm. called, well, when I did, it was called Vital Parts. Uh, when it got released, it was called Private Parts, <laughs> not the Howard Stern. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the one made right. in 1972, yeah, right? Yeah, 72, I think it was. And uh, yeah. yeah, Paul Paul Bartell directed it. But, uh, you know, it kind of mm-hmm. suffered a horrible fate, too, of, you know, I was always dubious about that title. I, you know, I even said to Paul, man, I, you know, I don't know how you're going to fare well with that title. It sounds lurid, lurid in a way, and the film has mm-hmm. its lurid parts, but to put that in the title, let people find that out when they come to see the movie, not in the title. <laughs> well, they thought they were doing themselves a favor by changing the title from, pri- uh, from vital parts to private parts, you know. Uh, right. which is you know not the best idea and that's what they went with struck the prince and they went out and when the uh, at that time i don't know whether they remember this there was a thing that was also going on in the newspapers there was a lot of porno theaters around in those days you know you could actually that time yeah, yeah like the, the early 70s yeah yeah <laughs> exactly and uh, yeah. what the newspapers did to make sure audiences knew they were going to see a legitimate well not that it wasn't legitimate, but not a porno film, was the porno film section, the page that they were on was, you know, it wasn't the black ink, they kind of grayed it out slightly. So you would know yeah. you were going to see a porno film. And uh, none of the newspapers uh, would accept that uh, Private Parts was anything but a porno film. <laughs> so oh, it ended geez. up on the page, the gray, grayed out page because of the title. And it just- But you gotta give- I think Paul, Paul Bart, like, I mean, that's, that's pretty much vintage Paul Bartle to be doing. Oh yeah, it was his, like, it was have his a, first have a title film. like that. You know, yeah, it was, you know, vintage Paul Bartel. It yeah. was actually his first feature film as a director. Um, mm-hmm. It was screened in New York for Judith Christ. She gave it a rave review and pronounced Paul Bartel, perhaps the new uh, Alfred Hitchcock. And it, you know, it was contemporized <laughs> to a degree where, like I was saying, it kind of had a lurid subject matter. And mm-hmm. uh, it had a, a, a very graphic, not sexual scene, but death scene in there where somebody in like the first five minutes gets their head lopped off and you actually see it. You know, the, the blade comes from yeah. behind, the head falls <laughs> off and goes rolling down the hallway, which is then was pretty graphic horror. You know, I don't think yeah. until- It's almost know, like, her, Texas almost like a Herschel Gordon Lewis kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even yeah. in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you never saw anything. You know, it was the no. angles, <laughs> and it was kind of like uh, with Alfred Hitchcock with the knife scene in the shower. You never saw any flesh being cut. It's, you know, blood in the water mm-hmm. and her screaming in her eyes and the guy flailing a knife and, you know, her using her hand. You know, it was all that kind of stuff. Well, in this one, you actually see the, you know, the body. I mean, somebody walking down the hallway and right out of nowhere, somebody steps out with a, I guess it was a machete and took the head off. <laughs> so. And I, I was kind of taken aback when I saw it at the screening because that was not in the script. And I had brought my entire family, including my, I think it was four-year-old oh, no. stepbrother, you know. So I was like, oh, thank you for bringing me to second half nightmares the rest of my life. <laughs> and meanwhile, you know, 
I'd only known my uh, in-laws, what, a couple of years. <laughs> so, you know, it's like you're taking them to a trash film. <laughs> so, yeah, I was pretty, pretty embarrassed right. by that. And the problem with oh, the film was, funny. like I said, in spite of this very amazing review from Judith Chris, who was probably the foremost uh, movie critic in those days. They just could not overcome it being mm -hmm. put into the gray section and getting an audience for it. And it, it was owned, the film was being distributed and I guess was sold to MGM who put it in their library uh, for mm -hmm. 20, 30 years. <laughs> and then Ted Turner, when he bought MGM, you know, they took everything and brought yeah. it back out and they actually put it on i guess whatever it was turner broadcast turner broadcasting it was tbs or tnt whatever tbs it was is turner yeah broadcast. and it kind of got a following and then suddenly it got a cult following in the nine i guess the 80s 90s and they started showing it in the theater again and it became this cult film uh out here we have wow. the new art theater and there was also an you know if you're, if you're near new york and know what the angelica theater is it would have oh, yeah. probably played there um, i'm sure the new we I'm sure the new Beverly Theater also has has their print. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been something Quentin Tarantino would have loved. Uh, you know, he, he probably liked um, what do you call Paul Bartel. But um, yeah, you know, so that was kind of a, you know, one of the films I <laughs> did. And lo and behold, <laughs> you know, years later, it became a cult, cult favorite. And, you know, I get a lot of people email me about it or you know, go to my my fan website and you know, mention mm -hmm. it. I should put more material up about it. I, I really hadn't seen it in years. In fact, my brother accidentally saw it. They went to the New Art Theater in, in LA where they're known for showing older films and cult films. And they went to see something else and it happened to be double billed with, uh, with private parts. So they stayed and watched it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So that anyway, is, that uh, is my wild. two sons came along and uh, during my two sons, <laughs> I did another film, which I guess if I'm known for anything else or you know certain things you do fall into oblivion i'm sure nobody knows who the bonnie parker story is uh but i did mm -hmm. a western which like i said the whole reason i got involved in the movie industry when i was six years old didn't have front teeth but i had a cap gun and a hat uh you know was to yep. be a cowboy and one of the earliest things i did uh i didn't have any lines but i was actually in a roy rogers toy commercial it was a toy lariat and he's teaching oh, me wow. how to spin a lariat. And, and then I back away and he throws his lariat over me and pulls me in. I've never been able to find the film for that, but it does exist probably somewhere. Um, so I never got a Western. You know, all my friends mm -hmm. who were actors got Westerns, you know, Laramie, Wagon Train, you know, whatever, have gun will travel. Have gun will travel, and, yeah. Know, yeah, and all I am is just a stupid little kid in a classroom or something or you know real clean cut shows so finally uh i guess it was the second or third year of my three sons uh, i you know because i was on the show and i had a body of work a director asked to see me for a western and you know mm -hmm. i was beside myself and i went in and met the director at mgm and uh, you know we talked for about a half hour and, you know uh got home and you know the agent called and said you're you're hired and uh, it was for this movie uh called how the west was one which was ah, okay. going to be shot in cinerama in fact it turned out to be the last cinerama feature film ever made mm -hmm. uh and uh, you know if you're going to be in a western 
this was the one to be in because mm -hmm. it was going to be a three yeah. hour long movie. It had three directors, uh, George Stevens, uh, Henry, uh, Henry Ford, uh, George Stevens, John Ford and Henry Hathaway. And my wow. particular section was going to be directed by Henry Hathaway. I'm in the last third of the film. And mm -hmm. the reason it became such a big film is it had everybody who was anybody in Hollywood. Henry Fonda was in it, uh, Jimmy Stewart, yeah. uh, Richard Woodmark, uh, Gregory Peck. Debbie Reynolds, uh, the list goes on and on and on. Anyway, anybody who was, everybody who was anybody was in this film. And uh, somehow it, uh, at the end of the year, when the Oscar nominations came around, it, it got nominated as best picture and, and the screenplay won. I don't mm -hmm. think the film did. I'm not, I'm not sure if it did or didn't, I know for sure. And then I've seen it years later and the screenplay really holds up. It was just a great film uh, in spite of it being made that long ago. Uh, and again, it's yeah. other statuses. It was the last of the Cinerama films made. I, I don't know what you know about Cinerama, but without Cinerama back in 1952, 53, uh, probably the movie industry would have gone out of business. It had a new little competitor yeah. called the TV set, and they were losing, mm -hmm. you know, people, customers coming to the theater in droves as people were buying TV sets. Um, and then these engineers came up with a process so that it, you could uh, shoot and then project a film that didn't look like a square box, which if you look at every movie from the beginning of time until Cinerama, were square like a tv set yeah. in those days yep and uh, they weren't very compelling films although they were new and this process had this uh you know when you looked at the screen it was a curved screen and it almost matched your periphery vision it wasn't quite 180 degrees but darn close to it so it was kind of a new movie making mm -hmm. experience and it really caught on uh people were going in droves to see those they built I think it was 335 uh, Cinerama theaters around the United States. And people were going to see this film yeah. called This is Cinerama, except they were going in their tuxedos and suits to go see it. It was you know, funny <laughs> to see people going. It so was an event. Yeah. Because it was an event. It was an event. And yeah. the films, you know, in those days were probably interesting and in just the experience of the Cinerama, which emulates human vision. So when the camera was moving, it's, gives you the feeling of, you know, not looking at a screen away from you, but you actually feel immersed in it. Uh, because mm -hmm. what would happen is it's, it's similar to being in a car, you know, when you're driving forward, you're seeing what's ahead of you, but what's happening on the side yeah. of you is it's whooshing by you. So it really gives the mm -hmm. illusion of, of motion. And uh, so, you know, it was popular and they made about six or seven of these uh, documentary style Cinerama, Cinerama films where, first one you flew across the united states and you saw sights in america the second one uh they strapped they wanted to get more motion out of it so it was strapped to some sort of device and went down the ski slopes and then it was on a, a front of a roller coaster uh and then right. there was seven wonders of the world they went to all seven wonders of the world so it was pretty compelling but it it was kind of getting old too and that there was no story attached and that's kind of where yeah, uh, they came out with a film uh, called The Wonderful World of Brothers Grimm, which actually had a narrative script. Uh, I think Lawrence Harvey was the star of it. And he was one of the Grimm brothers. Uh, Russ Tamblin was in it. And it was shot more like a oh, conventional wow. film with story. And, but they really used the Cinerama at that point to very good effect in a, in a feature film that had a narrative story. 
And then they did one more, which was called How the Westers Went. Um, it was a very expensive process because literally what Cinerama is, is this huge, it's a camera that looked like an old time phone booth. And what it had mm -hmm. was three lenses on it, one looking straight out and one looking to the left, one looking to the right. And those comprised the three panels that when you would project it, the projector was set up the same way with a center projector lens, two side lenses. And because of all that, you could almost see 180 degrees. So um, oh, anyway. Wow. Uh, That's gotta be amazing. Yeah, well, what it really did for the industry was it brought people back to the theater for a movie going experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, they show, they prove that you could do a narrative film that way. But the thing that they had overcome was it was so expensive to shoot in Cinerama because you're running off three times the amount of film, one for each camera. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the editing process was a nightmare. So somebody came out with, I think it was called Panavision Super 70 Anamorphic. So it was an anamorphic lens, which could see almost the same mm -hmm. vista uh that the cinerama saw but you're doing yeah. it with a single lens and condensing it by this anamorphic process onto a piece of 70 millimeter film and then to unsqueeze it you would you know put a 70 millimeter super pan vision lens on the projector and you could unsqueeze it in it so now you have a thing where you can shoot with a single camera and bring the budget back under control and move the camera much more easily and you know, you came out with the same thing. And I believe they shot Mad, Mad, Mad World uh, was shot with that process. Mm. And so was 2001. And you had the birth of widescreen cinematography. And after that, everything was widescreen. All these companies came up with their version, VistaVision, Panavision, you know, all the different mm -hmm. widescreen formats. So, um, yeah. Wow. Anyway, that was kind of an interesting film, which has gone on to become, you know, very popular uh i think once a year every other year at the cinerama dome in hollywood they break it out and you know they show uh uh how the west was won occasionally i think it was in 2012 they actually had a cinerama film festival and i met oh, this cool. guy uh who uh was actually restoring all the uh, cinerama films and uh anyway he approached me one day about you know getting involved in shooting a uh a Cinerama film for this Cinerama Film Festival. And, uh, you know, since he was the Cinerama gu guru, uh, came up with an idea mm -hmm. of kind of, I don't want to say mocking, but doing kind of like what they did <laughs> with these little documentaries of going places. Well, instead of going like around the world and seeing all these different glorious sites, we went around LA and saw the sites of LA. So Long Beach nice. Harbor, <laughs> the Angel's Flight, the Merry-Go, the Stark Merry-Go-Round at, uh, at Griffith Park, uh, but yeah, it you know it was very very interesting. So we uh, did this film, and it ended up opening the Cinerama Film Festival in 2012, and they showed all of those documentaries. Uh, I think there were six mm -hmm. or seven of them. They showed How the West Was Won. They showed Brothers Grimm. They also showed the two that were introduced the anamorphic widescreen, which 2001, uh, Mad 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 World. And there was even a commercial shot, if you can believe this or not, in Cinerama. It was a Peugeot commercial shot in Europe using, uh, <laughs> using the widescreen process of uh, Cinerama. Wow. So, the, uh, so during that time, during the time from like the after, after My Three Sons, um, after uh, How the West Was Won and everything, and you're in, you're in the you know 70s 
eighties, nineties and everything. It's from what I saw in your, um, in the, uh, your filmography on, on IMDb, it looks like, you know, like you were having a good time and everything, picking some really interesting projects here and there, especially, you know, like, uh, you know, obviously private parts being a great example. Um, and I also saw that on one of them, you were credited as not only being an actor, but also doing special effects. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, that's for a friend of mine, uh, Fred Olin Ray. Uh, I forgot what movie Oh, was. he's a friend. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, he's a good buddy of mine. Uh, I, anyway, yeah, what happened? A friend of mine was supposed to do the special effects. Well, actually, in, in this film called, uh, what was it, Attack of the 60-Foot Centerfold? 60-Foot Centerfold, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I got billed for the special effects on that one. I might have, uh, but I, I, you know, I did another... Thing for him he got in a jam and i'm i'm really you name it i can make it sort of guy you know I, yeah that way when i bought my house i learned how to fix everything in it the plumbing electrical so you know i was always good at, at doing things but yeah on on um i think it was centerfold uh, another buddy of mine was supposed to do the special effects and he got sick i don't mm -hmm. i don't know what happened they needed some props for it some enlarged props because of the girl being so large there was a lipstick case i had to come up with with a so you can pull off the top and it looked like a, you know, thing of lipstick and they give it to her. But, you know, when she first sees it, she thinks it's a giant dildo, like a motorized dildo. So it kind of had a look like that, too. Um, the other one was, they give the Yeah, solution. that's Fred Olin Ray there. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's Fred. And yeah, the other one was, it was in the laboratory. A rat accidentally drinks some of the juice and turns into about a six foot rat. So they're trying to catch it. And nice. then there's a, kind of a scene where these two guys walk in with like a, about a six foot long, three foot wide mouse trap. Anyway, I built the mouse trap. Oh my. I built it out of a, out of a door, but it looked perfect. It looked like a perfect, I think the company that makes those is called Victor, you know, and yeah, mm -hmm. I aged it and it looked like it had the spring and all this stuff. So it sufficed. Then there was, I think at some point somebody fires a dart into the girl out of a thing that looks mm -hmm. like a bazooka. Well, I made the bazooka and made the dart. Um, yeah, it was a bunch of stuff. But the other film, yeah, I remember Fred calling up. He goes, you're so good at making, I'm in a jam. He goes, we have this, I'm shooting a movie. <laughs> I bought some footage from Universal of a Concorde jet. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, then we're writing our story around the, uh, the footage that they didn't use in the film of this jet flying and landing. And he, you know, it has like right. a fake name on it. It doesn't say British Airways. It doesn't say Air France. It was just, you know, I don't even remember what was on it. And the nose was broken off. It didn't have a landing gear. So he said, is there any way, you know, you could, I can bring it over. It's about 10 feet long and about six feet wide. <laughs> you, you can restore this thing, put a landing gear on it. Uh, you know, put a point back on the nose. It has no windows, has no livery on it, whatever they call it. So I had to come up with the livery to match what mm -hmm. was in the footage. So I got that squared away. Anyway, it took me, I don't know, a week, week and a half maybe. And anyway, I turned this thing into uh, the the uh, Concord that they used that matched the footage that they bought from, I don't know which movie it was. I think it was actually called Concord or Airport or Airport. Four or oh, like Air, Airport 79? Yeah, that Airport 79, I think, the Concord. Yeah, something like that. So I thought I was done. And Fred calls it, he goes, so you're coming down tomorrow to, to help me with the plan? I go, what are you talking about? I go, I, it's done. I gave it back <laughs> to you. He goes, no, I got to figure out a way to get it in the foreground. It's going to be a forced perspective shot. He goes, I need you to help me set that up. So I came down there and invited a 
another friend of mine to help me, you know, kind of pull or push this thing in the frame. And then the actors were about 50, 60 feet away. So they were sized proportionately to this giant jet, which is now in the foreground. And then somebody comes up with a, one of those mobile stairs and it looks like it's kind of hidden by the wing, but it looks like they're rolling it up to the back door of the plane. And anyway, I, I never saw it, but I assume it turned right. out okay. and was in the film. Somebody saw it and told me about it. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I just, nice. uh, yeah, I've done it. You name it, I've done it. That's the one thing, uh, you know, about production. If you're you're the producer, <laughs> something goes wrong, you got to fix it. It's your problem. <laughs> everything is your problem. So over the years, I've had, God knows, everything that could happen or go wrong, go wrong. And, you know, you got to figure out how, what you're going to do about it. So with that in mind, um, every, so would that be like a tip that you would give to people that are kind of up and coming, wanting to get into this industry, basically I, just I, like to learn as much as you can? Yes, yes, yes. Um, even if you're going to be an actor, and I think more actors are aware of this, uh, you know, the era I came out of all through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you weren't expected to know anything else, you know, just hit your mark and say your line is pretty much it. But I, I always felt it behooved actors to know about everything you know it doesn't mm -hmm. hurt to take a directing class doesn't hurt to take you know classes about cameras and lenses so you know what they are and you know why we use them uh, doesn't hurt to know about editing how this is going to be edited together because you might think about your performance in a different way um, yeah. and there were actors that did that <laughs> earlier on that <laughs> sort of became what they call scene stealers or they would do things knowing that if they did this you wouldn't be able to edit around them and they would be on camera <laughs> so mm -hmm. anyway you know you learn a whole bunch of things I, I, I don't know whether you know about this t uh this program that i developed uh this was wow i guess it was around 2005 something like this i put this program actually together for actors it's called the actor's journey mm -hmm. project uh, are you aware of it oh yeah, yeah. Well, this Some, is a big deal. It sounds very familiar. Okay. Well, there's sounds the very actor's familiar, journey, yeah. and then there was also the actor's journey for kids and teens, which actually, that's how I got involved in it. Um, you know, what bothered me as being an actor and then having segued into all these other dimensions was I realized how actors really only know a little bit about the industry. Uh, you know, they know they go to school, whether it's a mom and pop school and they spend a thousand bucks on some acting lessons or if they end up at Yale and Harvard and drop a hundred grand, they come out, you know, if they have any yeah. talent at all or any, in, you know, they're, you know, gifted talent and they develop it to a certain extent, they become pretty good actors. But, um, and they're good whether they're on stage, they learn a little bit about doing it in front of a camera. But they know nothing about the movie industry, which is like ludicrous. That always bothered me. You know, it's like, what does this mean? What does right. that mean? I just spent a hundred grand at, at you know Yale to become an actor, and I don't even know how to get into show business. What's that all about? Mm. Well, what it's all about right. is they don't teach that in the colleges or in the high schools or anything. Because number one, the people teaching you never had a career, or most of them haven't, or if they did, it was brief, and then they became actors, uh, and then finally teachers. Yeah. So. Um, there's this whole other thing, you know, that's why our, our business is a two component industry. You have to know how to act and you have to know the business side of acting, meaning the non-performance mm -hmm. skills necessary to get yourself into the industry and to, you know, pre 
perpetuate a career and hopefully learn the secret of moving up so you're you know moving up in the industry and getting different and better parts um none of that is taught and it just always bothered me and anyway about 19 i guess it was 2000 i got the idea i thought you know what i should do and i kept you know talking to friends of mine they go well you should do it because you know the acting mm -hmm. part you're hiring actors you're you know, you know everything about directing, producing, and all the things they would want to know. Why don't you put a program together? And I thought about it, and I thought, yeah, that that's a... So I thought, well, maybe I'll do this two-hour video. I especially wanted to do it for kids, because they get ripped off all the time by these commercial agencies and modeling agencies. And so I wanted to do this two-hour-long program for the parents who involved their children, like my mom involved me, you know. And fortunately, uh, it worked out great. But I can't tell you for every actor that works out great, there's probably a thousand that it doesn't. So uh, in putting this thing together uh, that I figured out what all the material was I was going to need to interview people about and to put this program together, I suddenly thought to myself, I went, you know what, it's not just the kid actor. I should really be doing this for the adult actor because kid actors are a kid actor for what? Till you're 18? Yeah. Then you spend the next 60 years as an right. adult actor. And it's the people coming out of colleges that don't know what to do. So I decided, okay, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna shoot it simultaneous and invite the people who were kid actors. Some of them had careers afterwards so they can kind of segue into the adult thing. And then the rest of them, I'm gonna invite all my adult actor friends and let that be done. But it wasn't gonna be information. See, I didn't wanna do it myself. I thought it would be kind of, you know, if it's just me disseminating this information, it, it would either be I don't know, you know, then it just becomes your opinion. Uh, and I didn't want it to be my right. opinion. I wanted it to be a plethora of voices that are chiming in on this. So I contacted about a hundred of my friends. I said, here's what I'm doing. Can you be a part of this? And, you know, uh, all of them said yes. Well, most of them said yes. So I mm -hmm. put together this uh, program uh, for adult actors that literally discusses every aspect, the business aspects of being an actor. And it's more than just get a reel, get a resume, try and get in Screen Actors Guild, try and get an agent, try and get a manager. Those are four or five of the things you absolutely have to do. But the t entire program had about 65 topics. So that'll tell you how deep and, and rich the business side of being an actor is and how many areas yeah. that actors are not familiar <laughs> right. with. So I brought together friends of mine who were actors, child actors for the child actor portion, but for the adult actor, I'm mainly focusing on adult actors, uh, but they were probably the smallest part. Mm -hmm. Who else we brought in were producers, executive producers, showrunners, agents, managers, casting directors, um, had the president of the Screen Actors Guild, the president of the Directors Guild of America, about 10 people that sat on boards at various guilds to disseminate the information that was part of this program. So we shot it all and then it took me about four years to edit it because I couldn't hire, I had originally hired people and they, you know, they don't know the acting side of it. So how are they gonna know what, what this guy just said, whether that was uh, the best way to say it or if it even meant something. So I locked right. myself away right. for about three, four years to edit, uh, I think it was over about 160, 170 hours of source footage. And originally I thought it would be about a two hour long program. Well, it turned out it's 10 hours long. Uh, it was on eight DVDs, about an hour and a half yeah. on each one, but literally soup the nuts. It, you know, discussed every aspect uh, of the business side of being an actor, more like a university type program taught by all these people 45 mm -hmm. of whom have been nominated 
or won uh, Emmy, Academy Award, and Golden Globe Awards. So, you know, you're literally getting the information from the horse's mouth, as they say. And then we did the other one Fabulous. at the same time, The Actor's Journey for Children and Teens. It turned out it's a five-hour-long program. And it's taught probably mm -hmm. by about half those people, um, some of them who had experience as child actors and somehow managed to uh, move on. But then also producers and directors who were known for producing and directing programming uh, with children and teens in it. So, you know, you really get these plethora of point of views about everything. Anyway, right now the uh, program is down because we're converting it into, um, you know, digital media and it'll be available for mm -hmm. streaming or download when we're through. So the, yeah, we kind of wrapped up distributing it on DVD, but, uh, and then I had pulled the website down because we, you know, we didn't want to fulfill any more orders until it comes up again. But if you go to YouTube, right. there's actually, I, we put a, a bunch of clips there with a lot of the people who are in it, Henry Winkler, Michael Gillark, we had the director, Richard Donner, uh, Jack Shea, who, like I said, was president of the uh, Director's Guild at the time, but has directed every TV show known to man. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you go to uh, YouTube and then look up The Actor's Journey, uh, you'll you'll discover, and there's probably about 50, 60 clips there that are kind of called from some of the footage there. Anyway, that's my payback. Wow, I wanted to put something back in the industry. I'm grateful for my three sons, but I you know, really would rather have been recognized for something like this that really you know, it gives actors a shortcut to understanding the business so that every actor who gets involved in this industry doesn't have to reinvent the wheel because they're all by themselves in the beginning and you only know other actors at your level. So it's very hard to gather the information you need and to make sense of all this where, you know, if you go through this program, it's like I said, you can watch it. Well, you could probably binge watch it in one setting, but there's so much material coming at you. You might want to watch it two or three times, but you're armed. You know, it was stuff that actors have been in the industry 20, 30, 30 years now have. So, you know, you can really direct your own career in That's a completely fantastic. different way. And so, uh, so where can, um, speaking of your uh, production company real quick, um, what type of projects are you, I, I understand that, you know, like everything is pretty much shut down because of COVID, yeah. but what type of projects catch your eye when, uh, when, when the production company is up and running? Yeah, well, we had another uh, project, it's also a TV pilot, but it was more a traditional one. It wasn't a, a talk show, but a sitcom. Uh, it's called Pot Melting, and it's about mm -hmm. a uh, Chinese girl who's about to marry a Jewish guy and their respective families. What could go wrong, right? <laughs> and uh, folks, that is very funny. It's kind of one of those uh, cross-cultural, uh, multi-inclusive uh, TV series that I, you know, thought it really had the right material there to, you know, have fun, make fun, uh, and, and be poignant in some way, you know, speaking about our culture today and how diverse it is. And uh, this, you know, mid-20s couple who are about to get engaged, but, uh, you know, are afraid to tell their parents because each of the parents has their own ideas of what they should be doing and where they should be headed. And, you know, the Chinese mom thinks she's engaged to a Chinese guy and uh, the Jewish family doesn't even know he's engaged. So they kind of are keeping their their mouth quiet to, to slowly let out the truth. So the first season would kind of comprise a lot of that. And then there's 
other people in there that have their own issues and problems that come to light too that make it pretty funny and like I said I thought very poignant so hopefully when COVID nice. is over I'll be out there again and see if there's any takers or find myself another financier who wants to put up the money for a TV pilot and you know hopefully uh, we can get some interest and make six or seven more you know so you have like a six or eight eight uh, episode season um, besides that i've got uh, two or three movies that i've been developing over a period of time which uh they've been close to production a couple times um but mm -hmm. you know uh, it, it's a whole different world out there and uh, for a while sometimes you yeah. think you're dealing with the wrong people i've had i can't tell you how many meetings with chinese production companies and sometimes they feel like they're going somewhere and then they're not i i don't even know where that is at this point but yeah, I've got a, a great story. It's actually a real life Indiana story about a uh, archeological find that happened uh, literally on the eve of World War II in China and the efforts to spirit uh, these relics out of China right under the noses of the Japanese who had already invaded China and um, weren't being very nice to the Chinese people, but at least at this point in time, were respectful of uh, US interests, uh, but yeah, I, stumbled upon this story and developed it and it's a uh, high action a thriller um and like i said i like the fact that it's based on something real uh, and then i've got another fictional story that i wrote that i there was something that i read about it, but it was just like a paragraph and i thought wow what a great idea for a movie and then i spent years developing it but what the gist of that story seems like all my stories take place right before world war ii but this one is about a pair of con men who sell the Eiffel Tower mm -hmm. as scrap metal to some German industrialists right before World War II. And again, oh, it's wow. an action comedy thriller and it takes, I guess probably 95% of it takes place in Paris. Uh, so it would have a, an international cast hopefully. And at the time I originally wrote it, uh, it was for Harrison Ford <laughs> and uh, Roy Scheider. <laughs> so I don't know who oh, wow. that bill these days, but th those are the two people I had in my mind's eye when I wrote it. And that script is completely finished. And, you know, I've just been polishing it uh, while this whole COVID thing's going on with the intent of getting it out there. And I've got some smaller stories. You know, I've got a horror film. Um, it's about this town that has kind of like a boogeyman in it. I don't want to give his name away because I don't want people looking it up, but it, it's also based right. on a true story. And then I've got another sci-fi thriller, kind of, I guess you would call a poor man's alien or something that takes place in a national park with these park rangers dealing with a situation where uh, America is bringing back some, what they think are rocks from the moon Titan and upon re-entry, mm -hmm. uh, this spaceship goes awry and the containment chamber ends up in this national park and turns out one of the rocks isn't actually a rock. <laughs> so. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But it's kind of funny in the milieu of, you know, park rangers. It's, you know, a group of guys and they're, they're dealing with it. And some of them are too sophisticated. Yeah. And yeah, it's kind of, again, got some comedy in it, but it's pretty much a thriller. Nice, so I've got nice. yeah all kinds of crazy stuff. And uh, so where can where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, they can find me. I have a, what I created as a fan website, but I have to confess between COVID and uh, I moved out of LA between the the move I made and and I didn't want to deal again with that actor's journey project, uh, trying to mm -hmm. fulfill orders for people and being involved in that for a while while we were 
uh, transcoding everything so it can be uplifted. Um, I haven't been to that website in a while, but it's pretty deep. It's got a lot of stuff. It's my name, stanleylivingston.com. If you go there, it's it's got tons of stuff about the films I've been in, a lot of stuff about My Three Sons, when I was making personal appearances, information about that, how the West was won, uh, photo out time I have people go work and I get a photo from My Three Sons, so there's lots of photos there. There's also photos from some of the other things I've been in there. And at some point, since I've got all this downtime, I'm probably going to have to update it. And I'm going to probably update the, mm-hmm. the entire website, the look of it. But, you know, where it functions. And I get you know people sending me emails from there. Um, and I get orders for photos. So I'm assuming people still go through there. Uh, the other thing, if you want to see what I'm doing, is my production company, which is firstteamproductions.com. And if you go there... Uh, you can see some of the stuff I've been involved in um, and then some of the stuff that's on the table that uh, we're either developing or in partnership with other people developing and whichever one comes up first, that'll be the one we're doing. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And so that's- I, I hope that, I hope that all of my, all, I hope that all of my listeners have really enjoyed this conversation as much as I have, because Stanley really is the, perfect example of someone living that Excelsior journey because start, you know, starting off in so many people would be content to just be like a child actor, but even from that young age, you know, he knew to consistently ask questions, broaden his horizons and get himself in the position to where he is right now. And it's, it's just an amazing experience getting to hear all of this. And I really hope that all of you are able to, Take what uh, what we learned here and apply it to yourself. To not be content to where you, with where you are. To keep on asking questions, keep on building your experience, to keep on expanding, broadening your education. And the great thing is, Stanley himself not only did it, but also is providing you the tools to do it as well. So. Um, it's been just a real pleasure getting to speak with him, getting to learn of his Excelsior journey. I hope you all are able to get all of this as well and apply it to your own. And so for Stanley Livingston, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward, and I'll see you next week.